So as Jason mentioned, this is our last sermon in our series of being together and why we do what we do when we gather and that it matters why we do. We've labored together these last 10 weeks looking intently at why we do these things. Uh, I've I've received uh, text messages, voicemails, um, emails, phone calls, face-to-face. A lot of you guys have really enjoyed what we've talked about, how we've walked through the different components of why we do these things. And I'm really pleased that the other elders and I could serve the church by explaining why we do what we do. It has been a joy to do this. Anytime that we get together and we better understand our purpose for when we gather, I think is a good thing. But only if it's revealed from the source of truth, God's word. We're talking about being informed from scripture on why we do what we do. And and so we've aimed at explaining and even sometimes defending what we do on the basis of what we see in God's word. Not just tradition, not just on even feelings alone, but something I mentioned a couple of weeks ago was that on unchangeable truth, the unchangeable truth of God's word. And so today we wrap this up. You've heard us talk about praying, about preaching, about singing, about baptizing, about remembering the Lord's Supper, about giving. And last week, Mike brought to us why we go. Today, we're going to pull it all together, and I specifically want you all to see your part in it. The truth is, and why I wanted to wrap it up in this way, why God led us to this point, is because it's tempting to hear all of those things, preaching, praying, why we do all of those things, why we give, all of that. It's tempting to hear those things and just say, man, that's great. Our, our elders do those things, or our, our deacons do those things, or our Sunday school teachers. we got a lot of great volunteers that do those things. And we forget or bypass internalizing ourselves and recognizing God is calling you, brothers and sisters, to those things, not just other people. If we, if we think that way, it's always on somebody else, we're going to fail to embrace the role that God has given us in the body. We will. We'll fail to embrace it. So I want to be clear as we start off and just say this. If Christ has saved you, you have a place in the body. You have a role in the church. You belong. You have something unique and special and important to offer the body of Christ here. You have something that the rest of us need. And if you're not operating in that gift, then the whole body suffers. And we'll talk more about that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read verses 12 through 20. And then we're going to have a word of prayer. It's 1 Corinthians 12, starting with verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Let's pray. Lord, it, it has been just as helpful and joyful these past ten weeks or so as it has been convicting of what it means to get together and what our church does and what that looks like and how we respond appropriately to your word when we look through these things. And today is no different, Lord. You're, you're showing us our individual functions and yet not just our individual functions, but how that impacts the whole. And so, Lord, in me, do a great work this morning. Because I have so much room to improve here. My brothers and sisters, they need to improve here. Not so that we can boast in how much we have it together, because we really don't. But Lord, just so that we can be a clearer and clearer image of what your word talks about as the church. So that we can glorify your name more and more. That, that our, the evidence of our salvation is brighter and brighter in our families and in our communities and in the world. And so God, do that work in us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me ask you some biology-related questions just for a second to kind of help us where we're going. Before you were ever even conceived, did you decide that you wanted to be born? No, you could not. Okay, that's pretty obvious. Um, okay, fast forward. When you were in your mother's womb, did you consciously dictate how your body would form? Did you say, okay, legs, you're popping out today, you're growing? No. When you're in the womb, do you determine, or, or at any point, do you determine if you're going to be right or left-handed? Do you determine if you're going to have brown or blue eyes? Do you determine your skin tone? Do you ever determine your hair color? No. Do you decide, did you decide in the womb if you were going to be athletic or if you were going to be musical or if you were going to be artistic? Did you determine when you would be born or what family you would be born into or what place in the family? No, despite all of our medical advances, even some in this field, it's ultimately still God who determines these things. God determines these things. It's that way in the family. And brothers and sisters, it's the same way in the church. God determines your giftedness and your role in the body. Look back at verse 11 just for a second. In 1 Corinthians 12. It says that God, the Spirit, distributes gifts to His people as He wills, as He determines. What, that, what does that mean? God decides, not us. God gives. Just like you can't determine what color eyes you're going to have, you don't determine what gift you have. God gives. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, which is a similar parallel passage, about the body. He says that we shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. 
which is always something to keep in mind in a family or in the church. But he says, think of yourselves in light of the faith that you've mustered up and developed over the years. No, he says, think of yourself in measure of the faith that God has given you, that God has distributed to each of you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, is sort of the whole crux of this text, I believe. It says, but as it is, who arranged the members? God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as He chose. Other translations say, according to His design, or as it pleased Him, or as He desired. Do you guys get the picture here? It's according to God's design, not a pastor's design, not a committee's design, not anyone else's, but God's design. God has arranged the members of the body as he chooses. So I'll say it again. God decides, not us. I'm continuing to kind of hover over this point for a particular reason. Okay, I'm, I'm dry, trying to drive it home because we're tempted to believe the opposite thing. We are. You and I are tempted to believe the opposite things. We're tempted to believe that if we just try hard enough or pray long enough, that God's just going to give us the giftedness that we think is best or that we think we want to operate in. But who determines the giftedness of his people? God does. As he wills, as he determines according to his design. Now you might... You might be sitting there and you might argue, say, wait a second. I've read this chapter in 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 31, and you can look at there with me. In verse 31, Paul literally says to earnestly desire the higher gifts. So what about that? I hear that question. That's a question that I had as we went through this, and we're going to get to there in just a bit. Stay with it. But because it's God who determines and distributes gifts to the body, here's one of the temptations that I mentioned. The temptation is to compare. Theodore Roosevelt is famous for saying, comparison is the thief of joy. You guys ever heard that before? It's not an inspired phrase, but I think there's some truth to that. Comparison is the thief of joy. The church body in Corinth, we can tell by the way Paul wrote this letter, was falling prey to some of these temptations, this way of thinking. And so Paul writes to set them straight here. Out of comparing to one another, two things came up that we want to talk about today. Two things. Some members felt useless and other members felt self-sufficient. Some of them felt useless and some of them felt self-sufficient. But Paul lays the groundwork in verses 12 through 14, for where he's going by reminding his readers of this very simple and I think obvious truth, we are all connected in Christ. We're all connected in Christ. So my goal today is kind of narrow, and I'll admit that. It's not, I'm not going to speak about the individual gifts that are mentioned uh, or the list in general that Paul gives, but more to focus on why they were given. Why did God give members gifts in the church? And I think Paul tells us specifically, if you want to just glance back to verse 7. We didn't read that together, but look at verse 7. It says that they were given specifically why? 
for the common good. The gifts were not given to exalt the church member. The gifts were given for the common good of the body. God determines the gifts given to members of the body for that purpose, for the good of the whole church. And this is what I think we need to remember when we come to verse 31, when it says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. What is the ultimate purpose of every gift of every member in the church? We just said it, for the common good of the whole. 1 Corinthians 14, just a couple chapters from here, Paul uses variances of the phrase, build up. Six different times in that chapter. He's going after something specific. And if you look and read through 1 Corinthians 14, what's the main topic? Prophecy in tongues. Gifts in the body. And Paul says, build up six different times at least. And so we need to remember that God gives gifts in the body to build up, to unify the church, not to divide it. Not to tear it apart. So when Paul uses the word higher in chapter 12, verse 31, he actually uses the same word that's translated greater in chapter 14, verse 5. It's the same Greek word, meson, which is a form of megas, mega. Paul is encouraging Christians here to desire that God would give them the gifts that do more to build up the body. What gifts build up the church? Those are the gifts we should be earnestly desiring. What is going to bless and honor my brothers and sisters the most? God, that's what I want. That's what I I ask for. I, I think it's possible to long for spiritual gifts that we don't yet have without saying that the ones that we do have are unimportant. It's okay to earnestly desire other gifts that build up the body as long as we're not saying the ones that God has already given us are meaningless or useless or unimportant. Is what you know of Christ completely sufficient for your salvation? Yes. But do you desire to know Him better every day? Yeah. To to see glimpses of truth from His Word that are fresh every morning? Yeah, I mean, isn't that the same thing? We have Christ sufficient for all, and yet we're constantly, eagerly desiring more. And this is how it is with gifts in the church. In the same way, we desire more of what God has for us to know him better, to be able to build up the church more and more through the gifts he gives. That's what we desire. Now, admittedly, and you can see this, there is certainly an individual quality to the gifts that God gives the gifts that God gives to people in the church because no one is given every one of the gifts. No one is given all of them. What's important, I think, to note, though, overall, is that Paul is emphasizing the effect of each person's gifts on the church as a whole, on the whole body. And so he, he, he addresses these two problems that the church in Corinth is dealing with, the feeling of uselessness And the feeling of self-sufficiency. See, when members of the body say things like like Paul mentioned, they say like, well, you don't need me. The foot should say in verse 15, the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Right. So the foot in this case study that Paul is giving is feeling useless. Well, I'm not a hand. 
So I don't belong to the body. When, when members say that, when, when we say, well, you don't really need me, or, or even when someone says, well, I don't need you, as we'll see in just a moment, the body is not going to display the spirit properly or produce the common good the way that it should. When we are stuck in one of these two problems, in one of these two temptations, we're not going to be the church that God's called us to be, that God is designing us to be. Verses, look at verse 15 and 16. They show us that some people in this church felt useless, like they weren't needed. They had the opinion that if they weren't like somebody else, that they didn't matter. They didn't have purpose. The foot didn't like being a foot. They wanted to be a hand. Because they weren't the hand, they felt unnecessary. The ear, as we'll see, the ear feels that because they're not an eye, they don't serve a purpose, that they aren't needed. The body is okay without me. I don't need to be there regularly on Sunday mornings in worship. The body can live without me. No one will miss me if I'm gone. My gifts are not important. You've heard these things before? Have you felt or said these things before? If the feeling of uselessness in the body of Christ is a sickness, I'll give you Paul's really simple and kind of abrupt prescription. He just gives him a big dose of reality. He says, look, I understand the way you're feeling, but you need to know that you're wrong. The foot doesn't want to be a foot because it's not a hand, but does that make it any less a part of the body? Paul's saying, I hear you, but you need to know that what you're feeling is not reality. Just because the foot or the ear thinks or feels or even says that they're unimportant does not change the fact that they're a part of the body, that they belong to the body. And brothers and sisters, in this life, we are all, you are going to be tempted to say, to feel, and to think things that are just flat out wrong. They're just not true. It's a temptation. Just for instance, every time I sin, I'm tempted to think that God's love for me is going to be taken away because of my bad behavior. That's something that I think often, and maybe you do too. I feel that way at times. And yet, what is the truth? I am wrong because Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to cover every one of my sins in the past and in the future. And if I put my entire hope and all of my trust in Christ alone and none in myself, then God's right judgment for my sin was paid on Christ on the cross. That's the truth. No matter what I feel, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No matter what I feel about what my sin does, that's the truth. Whenever I feel too busy to read his word, too uninterested in a particularly dry or difficult time in my walk, I'm tempted to think that God just isn't there or that God isn't real at all or that his word is just irrelevant to my life. But my feelings, I think Paul would say, my feelings are flawed because every bit of God's word is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that I can be equipped, so that you can be equipped for every good work and that we would be led on our way in maturity in Christ. Every bit of scripture, Paul tells Timothy, is useful for those things. No matter what I feel, that's the truth. So... If you've concluded that you're not needed in the body, I think Paul 
in love, but in truth would just flat out tell you, you've reached the wrong conclusion. Your conclusion is wrong. It's flawed. Your thinking is flawed because it's based on something other than the truth. You may feel it. You may even say it out loud, but it's not true. Just because you're not like someone else doesn't mean you're not part of the body. So instead of comparison, instead of looking at others and thinking that you need to be gifted in some other way to be useful or effective in the body, Paul is saying, no, embrace the gift that God has given you. Operate in it. Embrace it. He says, look at verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If, if everyone was just like this other person in their giftedness, then where would the gift that they gave up be? In verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? In other words, the body would not exist if there was no diversity in its parts. I'm just going to let that simmer for just a second. God's design is for diversity, brothers and sisters. His plan from the start, both in the offer of salvation, as we see from Jews to Gentiles, salvation to the world and in the makeup of its body, his design has been diversity and togetherness. Now think about those two things. Because at the onset, those things seem like they can't be together. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Individuality, diversity, and togetherness. I think they can coexist. And I believe that they have to in the church. We have to be different while still being together. And we celebrate that, don't we? Like it or not, we were designed to need each other. That is hard for me to wrap my brain around some days. I don't know if it is for you or not, but we were designed to need each other. Our American culture, uh, specifically being a, a man, it's the, the pressure is to just make your name for yourself. Don't rely on anybody else. Do it all yourself. And then everybody will look up to you as this perfect person. And it's silly. And it's not biblical. And God is consistently teaching me that very truth. Like it or not, God designed us to need one another. And like it or not, it's God who arranges the body and the members in it as he chooses. Verse 18, I think, is the, is the evidence that shows us the biggest part of conquering comparison and unhappiness in our place in the body of Christ. It's this. Trust that God is sovereign in his design and that he does it for the best interest of the church. For the common good. It's trusting in the sovereign workings of a wise and good God. That's what it boils down to, I think. If we say, think about this, if we say, I, I don't, the, the church doesn't really need me. If I say I'm useless, then I'm not only saying no to the idea of the body of Christ, but worse, I'm saying no to God and His design. And in doing this, I think I reveal, and in doing this, I think you reveal that you really just don't trust God. Paul's cure for feeling useless in the body is kind of threefold, and we've talked about some of them. But first, it's just admit that those feelings that you have of uselessness, they just don't line up with the truth. They're wrong. You may feel that, but 
your feelings are out of sync with reality, he says. Secondly, to think that you should be like others in the body rather than having your own unique giftedness and role is to go against God's plan for diversity in the church. And third, I think maybe most important, if we resent the gift that we have and our unique demonstration of the Spirit, that is a way of not trusting God. Because if God designs the body, then to say that you're useless is to say that God is weak or that he's made a mistake, that he's not sovereign, that he's not wise, and that he's not good. Like all issues, I believe it really just comes down to a really God-focused problem. Do I trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust that you can be fulfilled in the place where you're at operating the gift that you've been given? That's kind of Paul's prescription on how we tackle the feeling of uselessness, but that's not the only thing that he warns about in this text. Paul says to fight against those feelings as well as, just the same way, fight against feelings of being self-sufficient. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. Let's read verses 21 through 27 together. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So just as there is temptation for people in the church to feel unnecessary, there's temptation in the church for some people to feel like they don't need anybody else to be self-sufficient. He says in verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. What's the prescription for people who feel self-sufficient? Verse 25, I think Paul lays it out. He says, have the same care for one another. Care for one another. Guys, when disagreements come up in members' meetings or when the church members just don't see eye-to-eye on different issues, I think if you asked everybody involved, they would think that they're right. I mean, isn't that true of most arguments? Most people don't argue from a, a, a knowingly wrong standpoint. Everybody thinks that they're right. And so in that revelation, every one of us is feeling self-sufficient. I don't need them. My view's correct. That person, those people, they're just making it harder to obey God. They're just holding us back. I have to confess that I've been that kind of church member before. And I'm sorry. I've missed, I think, what Paul and what God is saying in these verses. The purpose of the gifts, the purpose of diversity in the body is to build one another up and to care for one another. Not to flaunt or not to think we own some superior spirituality. But notice something here. I think the root of both of these problems 
sicknesses of feeling useless or feeling self-sufficient, the root of them is actually just pride. It's, it's really just pride. At their core, both of these feelings come from thinking too much about me. Just think about that. The person who thinks they're unimportant doesn't trust God's design and think he's messed it up because they're not needed in the church the way that they think they should be needed, the way that they expected to be needed. They say, well, if I was gifted like this other person, then I would feel fulfilled in the church. Pride. The one who thinks they don't need other people in the church doesn't trust God's design and thinks that he's messed it up because they're more needed in the church than anybody else. This kind of person says, well, if everyone was as spiritual or understood this as much as me, then we wouldn't be having any of these problems. Pride. You see it? You see how pride is really just at the bottom of it all? But God has designed the body, and we see it in these verses. God's designed the body specifically to help us avoid these temptations. Look at it this way. I'll kind of jump off of Jason's illustration about his poor finger. If you lost a finger, you lost the tip, but if you lost the whole finger, or let's say you lost an eye, it would be difficult to live. But you could, right? But it it would be difficult. Losing an eye or a finger would create significant hardships and difficulties, but you could get through it. But some people know what it means to lose something bigger, like an organ, you know, like a, like a kidney or a spleen or a lung. You can actually live without those things, but it's not easy. Your life would be more affected by losing your spleen than it would by losing your finger. Just practically, this is why early on people understood when you go into battle, where does your armor cover? It covers your head and it covers your midsection. Why? Because that's where your vulnerable places are, right? That's where your critical and sensitive body parts exist. And so you cover those up. And yet, I think we would probably show more sympathy to a guy who is missing a leg than to a guy who's missing a kidney. Because it's obvious. Because it's apparent. Because it's right there. And because we associate the easily seen aspects of the body as more important when most times, guess what? It's the other way around. That's exactly Paul's point in what he says here. He says because we have to keep them from view and because we have to protect them so carefully, the least honorable and seen parts of the human body become, in a way, the most honored and the most essential parts of the body. Paul is illustrating the truth that every part of the body has a purpose and is important to its overall function and livelihood. He says in verse 24 and 25, but God has so composed the body that there may be no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. You know what Paul's saying here? I think he's saying in the church, there's unity in the midst of diversity. With all the diverse gifts that God has given, there's a unity in it. We care for everyone the same, and yet we celebrate our unique giftedness. This is not easy. 
I can't say this is often well done, even in our church at times. But brothers and sisters, we are individual members of the same body. We are all parts of the same whole. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one finger gets smashed, all of your parts of your body hurt. You all suffer together. If one member is honored, Paul says, all rejoice together. If there was just one verse to sum up everything that we've talked about in our Together series, I think it might be that one. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Brothers and sisters, kids, the church will not be known for its pastors. It will not be known for its buildings. It will not be known for its programs. What does Jesus say in John 13 that the church will be known for? How we love one another. The church will be known, Christians will be known for how we love one another. How the world sees Christ followers, how the world sees Christianity is by how well we love one another. And not just about how we talk about it on Sunday mornings when we're in church together, but how we go out and live it, how we actually do it. So if this is true, and I would say that we would say it is true based on Scripture, if it is, how are we doing? Ask God that question about your own heart as I am mine. How am I doing? How's our church doing? Are we known for our love for one another? Or are we known for something else? Even if it's not a negative thing, that ought not to be what we'd be known for. We ought to be known for how we love one another. Not about how awesome our music is. Amen, it was awesome today. Not about how great our kids' program is. And it is great. Not about any of those things. Not about anything. Not about how wonderfully decorated our church buildings are. None of those things matter in the end. If we're not known for loving one another, I think Jesus would say that we've missed it. Let it be our deep and genuine desire to care for one another. Not to wallow in feelings of uselessness or to look down on others from some lofty sense of self-sufficiency and super-spirituality. We cannot let pride drive how we view ourselves or how we view one another. I pray this morning and as we go forward that we would embrace God's unique calling on us and on each of our lives and use them for the common good as God intends, for the building up of the body for his glory. I'm obviously speaking, or I hope it's obvious, I'm speaking this morning to believers because believers, you are a part of the body. And if you have identified with Ramsey Creek, you are a part of this church body. You are a member of it. And God has gifted you uniquely to honor him and to build up his church here. But if you're not a Christian, I'm not talking about you today. Because you're not part of the body of Christ. Your heart has not been made alive by the Spirit. You have not been granted repentance into life because you've not put your hope in Jesus. If that's you today, if you realize that you've never truly submitted to the role of Jesus in your life, I do want you to know something though. There's room in the body of Christ for you. We haven't filled up all the spots. We're not totally complete. Jesus is still making his church his spotless bride. And there is room for you. There is space in the embrace of Jesus. The embrace of a loving father 
And he's calling you to that embrace right now. When you look to the Son and believe, if you would look to the Son and believe, Jesus says in John 3 that you not only have eternal life, but that he has removed the wrath of God from you. It no longer sits over you. He's taken it on the cross. You don't need to be afraid that he won't love you. Because he's already shown that he does. He refused to spare his only son. Isaiah prophesied that it would please God to crush him so that everyone who calls on him would live, would have life. So despite what you think about the church, brothers and sisters, despite what I think about the church, despite even the poor example that the church sets at times, that we as individual Christians set at times over the years, despite all of those things, God is calling you to be a part of the church. This is the mystery of his design, Ephesians says in chapter 5. It's the mystery revealed in the church. This is God's design. He's calling you to be a part of it, to make it more complete, to operate in your unique giftedness for his glory and for the common good of the church. Now, I realize this morning that I have not gone through and explained to you which gift that you may have. That's something that we can talk about together individually if you have questions about those things. My point and my hope in speaking today was helping us understand that no matter which gift that you have, God is calling you to use it here when we come together for our common good. It's not to exalt any particular person or even any particular gift that's for the good of the church. It's to care for one another. And this, as Paul says, going back to the beginning, Paul says in verse 18, he says, this is all according to his design. This is God's design for the church. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I I didn't come up with this design. I've got gifts and desire to serve this body in certain ways, but they're not any less important or more important than some other gift. And so I pray, Lord, that we would think through where you have called us and how you have gifted us in this body. And Lord, as we get ready to partake in your supper together, Lord, I would pray and ask that you would help us to see ourselves without looking through the lens of pride, without thinking we're useless, Help us to see ourselves without thinking that we don't need other people. Give us a proper view of ourself. Give us a proper view of the church. In your name I pray. Amen.